This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. When does Christmas begin for you? This is a a running joke every year. There's always a debate, right? As soon as Halloween passes, there's this big question mark on, when do we get to play Christmas music? When do we get to put the tree up? Some folks, usually kind of the standard conventional approach is, as soon as Thanksgiving ends, we put up the tree. I was talking to my daughter about this and she she got really upset because we were listening to music. It was right after Halloween and all of a sudden Christmas music had come on and there were Christmas commercials on TV. And she's like, you know, why are we doing this? Give us time for Thanksgiving. Why do we have to have Christmas so early? Uh, there's always this debate. Now, myself, I love Christmas all year round. I listen to Christmas music all through the year. So I would love for Christmas to be all the time, but there are different rules and people will be quick to remind you that Christmas should be celebrated during a certain period of time. And there are people who take great umbrage with a premature celebration of the Christmas spirit. So when do you begin to celebrate Christmas? Maybe a better question is, when does the Bible show us Christmas first? How soon In God's story, do we see or do we begin to look forward to the hope of Christmas? I would submit to you that the very first mention of a type of Christmas hope in the Bible is not in the Gospels. It's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And you might think it is because we see that's where the birth of Christ occurs. But actually, the first mention of this this Christmas hope shows up three chapters into the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3.15, as we'll read quickly, uh, we see that we see this part of God's judgment of Adam and Eve and the serpent in the Garden of Eden, right? After Adam and Eve sinned by eating that forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We see that whole story in Genesis 3 verses 8 through 19. And the context of that passage begins with God questioning Adam as to why he hid. Remember, Adam sins, Adam and Eve sins. They begin to be aware of their nakedness and they begin, and it's really more of a symbol of their actual shame and their sin. And so they begin to hide from God. And so God questions Adam as to why he hid himself from God and whether he had eaten the forbidden fruit. Remember, he asked that question. And then what happens? Adam confessed his sin. But he didn't just confess his sin, he blame shifted, like we often do. So he, he shifted the blame to, his, to, to the woman that God had given him. We see that in Genesis 3, verse 12. So after that confession, then God asked the woman what she had done. And Eve also acknowledged that she had eaten the forbidden fruit, uh, but said nothing about her part in bringing that or or said nothing about the blame that should be taken because she shifted the blame much like Adam did, but she shifted it to the serpent and then put it on God as well. You see how they both did that. Adam put it on Eve and said, well, it was this woman, God, that you gave me. And then Eve is basically saying it's this serpent that ultimately you created. So there's this blame shifting that starts to happen. And 
God already knew the answers to these questions because what happens next, God questions, as he questions both of them, he gave them the opportunity to confess their sin, like he does with us. And so they both confessed to eating the forbidden fruit, but they never took responsibility for their sin. Instead, they tried to pass the blame onto others, including God himself. So what does God do? God pronounced judgment on all four participants in mankind's fall, right? He starts with the actual snake, right? The physical kind of snake itself. And he tells the snake that uh, he and all of his serpent kind would be cursed above all other animals, both wild and domestic. And they would, he would have, it would have to slither on its, on its, uh, on its stomach all of its days. And then after God condemns the snake, he then continues by pronouncing judgment on Satan himself and on Eve herself and on Adam himself in the order in which they fell into sin. Now, it's very significant to note that the judgment of Satan, the judgment of this spiritual serpent, if you will, uh, contained a hint of redemption for humanity. In God's judgment of the serpent, in his judgment of Satan, there's this hint of redemption for all of humankind. And this happened before Adam and Eve were ever judged. Before God pronounces his judgment on Adam and Eve, he gives this hint of hope for humanity. He gives the first hope of Christmas to humanity. Here's what Genesis 3.15 says. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the first, I would say, the first Advent prophecy in all of Scripture. There are several other places in the Old Testament where the foretelling of the promised Messiah is present. And and we see details about the coming Messiah and all of the things that the circumstances that will surround his birth and surround his life and surround the nature of who his mother is. All of those things we see, those prophecies there throughout the Old Testament. But this is the first real Advent prophecy. Now, Christmas or Advent season, uh, you might be wondering, depending on how you were raised and what types of church backgrounds you come from, we may not have used uh, the word Advent, but the the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus or Adventus. And it, it really just means arriving or coming. Something is coming. Something is arriving. Something is on the way. So within Christianity, Advent refers to the weeks leading up to Christmas. All of the time that we go back through remembering what it means to wait for the promised one, remembering what it means to wait for the blessed hope, the coming hope, the the Messiah that's coming to reverse the curse that began in Eden. So these many weeks before Christmas, during which churches all over the world, Christians all over the world, remember and prepare for the first coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, born of a virgin woman to, as Matthew says, to save his people from their sins. It's interesting, we just pointed this out, that before God ever pronounced any judgment on Adam and Eve for their sin, he revealed his plan to defeat Satan 
through one unique man who would be of the woman's seed. And that special man, as he said, would be wounded by Satan's attack, but not defeated. We know this was a prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah said, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now, that particular verse is one that I think has been used incorrectly more often than not, because it's been used to give this kind of charge and this alleged promise for divine healing for all those who belong to God. And that is not at all what that really means. Can God heal? Sure. But that's not the kind of healing that's happening here. The healing that's been promised is the healing of this sin-sick condition that we inherited from our first parents in Eden. And that sin-sick condition is the reason why the enmity that was that is that we saw happen even between Adam and Eve and the enmity between people in general is a result of that sin-sick issue that we have in our heart. And so because we've been waiting, people tried everything in the world to find a way to ameliorate this really messed up condition. And there, no matter what religious artifacts or religious rules and tenets that we hold to, none of that does enough to undo the sin sickness that we have. This, this ultimate desire to serve self at anyone else's expense, including God's. There's something that has to change and there's something outside of us that's necessary because otherwise we're born cursed. And so ultimately, uh, this idea of believing and hoping and longing for a Messiah to come to heal us from this sin sickness that we have is the, one of the greatest hopes that people have been longing for, longing for a Messiah that's going to come to actually do away with not just the curse of sin, but the sting and the consequence of sin, death, hell. And the grave. This is why theologians refer to Genesis 3:15 as something called the Proto-Evangelion. Proto meaning first, Evangelion meaning gospel, right? Good message, good news. The first gospel exists in Genesis 3:15. If anybody ever asks you, where's the first hint of the gospel in the Bible? Don't even don't even go to the gospels first. Because it shows up in Genesis 3. That's where God makes the first promise. These words spoken by God hold this promise of redemption. Adam and Eve messed up right out of the gate. And God said, I've got a plan to buy you back. I've got a plan to restore what's been broken. I've got a plan to reverse the curse of Eden to restore things back to the way that they were meant to be. I've got a plan hatched out. And, but, and remember, before God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you your judgment for your sin first. No, I'm going to give you the hope of redemption first. That's our God. Before he even begins to pronounce punishment and judgment, he pronounces redemption and hope. And so this, this first gospel uh, hints at the incarnation of Jesus, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Because what does that really mean? It means he's basically telling the serpent, yeah, you're going to bruise, you're going to bruise the seed of her, her, her seed. You're going to bruise uh, his heel. And what is he really talking about? Uh, Jesus will die 
And Satan may feel some sense of accomplishment in, in, in snuffing out the life of Jesus, which can only happen because Jesus voluntarily gives it. But, but you might feel like that that's doing something. And God is ultimately saying that is nothing more than just bruising the heel because he's going to crush your head. And when did the crushing happen? When the resurrection occurred. That meant that death and hell and the grave have no more power, have no lasting power any longer. This is the promise that God made in that first Christmas hope. And so therefore, Genesis 3.15 contains the first Advent prophecy of Christ's coming. Now, what does this mean? What should this mean for us as we're reading the scriptures, as we walk into this Advent season? Well, first of all, remember, the Bible, the, the collected works of scripture tells a story. It's the story of a great hero who absolutely triumphs over his evil and cunning foe. It's interesting that, that as the plot unfolds across the pages of history, the advent of this great hero comes late in the story. Remember, we've got all of the Old Testament that goes through. It points ahead, but thus the hero of the story doesn't show up until a little bit later. Before scripture even hints at his arrival, it first introduces us to his mighty foe. And that foe is not initially named. The Bible simply calls him the snake, the serpent. And even though it was Adam's willful disregard of God's rule that brought sin, death, and every kind of sorrow into our world, the temptation to rebel came from that conspiratorial snake, this hateful, jealous creature who was seized with murderous intent when he gazed on God's lovely creation. Bent on destruction, he acted out of his spiteful plan, ironically securing his final doom, a decision, uh, a decisive end that would come at the hands of this unnamed champion. Now, in this verse, God spoke directly to the snake, right? Prophesied about the one who would destroy him. And God identifies the destroyer as a man who would descend from the very woman whom the snake had so maliciously deceived. And that day, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's grief over their sin and over their loss did not fully give way to despair because God not only cursed this, this deceiver, uh, but he also uttered the first prophecy about this coming hero. That's what he does. He utters this, this coming hero, someone who in destroying the snake would rescue them from their sins and from the consequences of their sins as well. This is a message of hope that God gave to Adam and Eve. And he gave them this important clue as to where they might look for that rescuer. Now, they began to look for that rescuer in their own children first. Right In faith, Adam and Eve reproduced, and with the birth of each child, they probably were hoping and waiting for their redemption. Because God didn't say, he didn't give a timeline. He didn't say how long it would take. So they're probably waiting with expectancy going, are you the one? Is this child the one? Is this the one that's going to bring real redemption? Can you imagine the heartbreak that Adam and Eve experienced when their oldest son came? slaughtered their younger son, Abel, in a jealous rage. 
So we don't think about this in terms of real human beings here, but when you think about that, consider, don't think about this as just a nice fictitious story or a myth. Think about the, the, the reality, the humanity here. This, you've been created and you're in this incredible, beautiful, lush garden. And you have direct relationship with God, communion with God. And your own sin and selfishness overtakes you and, and creates real distance between you and God. And you're watching the consequences of your sin affect creation. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You see how it affects animals and creatures and mankind. You see how it's creating uh, uh, the ways that you relate to each other, the way Adam and Eve related to each other. God talked about that as a part of the curse as well. And you're like, this has been messed up so royally so soon. We're still hoping that that promise God made is going to happen sooner than later. Maybe it's in our kids. Look at our kids. Look at how they, they look like us. They talk like us. They, they, they function the way we do. Maybe this is going to be the time where we get to see a little bit of that redemption now in these, these beautiful children that are ours. Can you imagine just what the news had to be like when they find out that their son killed another son? They've been waiting for redemption. And instead of redemption, they see more of the curse. Instead of redemption, they see more sin. They are waiting for the blessed hope. They're waiting. They're waiting for Christmas. They're looking forward to Christmas. They're looking forward to the arrival of the one that will redeem and reverse the very curse that is ever present and ever before them. The one they hoped might rescue them from their sin was instead perpetuating it. And so then Seth was born, and with his birth probably came renewed hopes for redemption. And years would pass, and years would pass, and decades would pass, centuries would pass, millennia would pass. And even though Eve lived a long life and bore many children, she never did see the redemption she longed for. And the sin problem was only getting worse. But God's promise remained. And in time, God would reveal another clue about where desperate humanity might find this promised son. Don't forget this. God's response to Adam and Eve and their sin is not just judgment. It's advent. That's how he responds to their sin. And that's God's response to our sin as well. This Christmas season, as we walk into Advent, be focused on the fact that whatever it is that you've dealt with this year, whatever uh, God has revealed to you about your own sin <clears throat> and about your own issues and about any of the things that are still showing up as broken and in need of deep repair within you, God doesn't just respond with, you're wrong and here's my judgment of you. God doesn't respond with, here's all the ways that I'm displeased with you. God doesn't just respond with, here are all the ways that you ought to be punished. God responds to us the way he responded to Adam and Eve. And that is, he responds with Advent. He responds with this promise of hope, this promise of redemption. And not only did we get to, we get to look back 
to this promise in the ways that, in opposite of the ways that Adam and Eve and many of the Old Testament believers have to look forward and look ahead to the coming Messiah. But in the same way, we need to be remember, we need to be remembering that that God and his redemption is always coming. Advent is always before us. We are always looking for the Messiah to continue to come and to continue to deposit in our lives, to continue to bring his grace, to bring his mercy. That's God's response to your sin. That's God's response to our sin. Yes, we deal with the shame of our sin. And yes, we deal with what it means to repent. But none of, listen, shame and, and guilt don't bring hope. The chance of redemption is what brings hope. The promise that, that our brokenness will be restored brings hope. If just acknowledging our sin was enough, then we could just acknowledge it and live in the shame of it, which a lot of us do for the rest of our lives. Just live with the shame, live with the weight of what I've done or live with the weight of what I haven't done. And then just live in like this kind of sad state of just the weightiness of my sin ever pressing on me all the time. That's not hope. And that isn't redemption. So this Christmas, whatever it is that you're holding on to or whatever it is you're acknowledging, which prayerfully I hope you are, let that not be the final story because God does not end with judgment of you. He ends with Advent. He is the response to our sin. God promises the same way he promises Adam and Eve here. He promises a future savior, a savior who will come and crush the head of the serpent and be the very means of reconciliation between God and man. If you don't remember anything this Christmas, anything else, remember that this is something that constantly reminds us of our need to be reconciled to a holy God. Just living in guilt does not bring reconciliation. But this idea of understanding the weightiness of our sin and how much greater the grace of God and the mercy of God is in sending his son to come. God does not just respond to your sin with punishment and judgment. He promises Jesus. He promises Christmas. He promises Advent. And I pray that we can rest and find genuine joy and find genuine hope in the first Christmas hope of scripture right here in Genesis 3, this promise that God brings. I, don't, I want to end with two lesser known or lesser sung verses of uh, two very well-known Christmas songs or Christmas carols or Christmas hymns. There's one stanza that we don't often sing in the song Joy to the World that I feel like encapsulates so much of this hope that we should be clinging to right now. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. And finally, there's another lesser sung verse of hark the herald angels sing, come desire of nations come, fix in us thy humble home, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise us in the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory 
to the newborn king. This is our hope, not just in our shame, not just in our sin, not just in our guilt. God doesn't leave us there. God meets us with a promise, a promise that redemption has come and that redemption is always coming. So this Christmas, this Advent season, may we be a people of hope Despite all of the things that would indicate otherwise, this year, the heaviness of this year, the sadness of this year, the brokenness of this year, things that we've seen outside of us and things that have happened from us as well. All of that weightiness is something that we're holding on to. So what do we cling to instead? What do we cling to in the midst of it? We cling to the hope that has come and the hope that is always coming. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the hope that you bring, that you constantly remind us of. God, I'm thankful for the regular rhythms yearly, the annual rhythms that uh, allow us to partake of, remember, and find joy and peace and grace in this very promise that you have given to us. This promise that you don't leave us in our sin, the same way you did not leave Adam and Eve in their sin. You do not leave us in our brokenness. You do not leave us in our sadness. You don't leave us in our sickness. You have sent your son as a promise to restore us, to heal us. All the ways that you were bruised and wounded on our behalf so that we can partake of and cling to a hope that has come, but is always coming. And Father, may we cling to that until you come and make all things new in your promise to restore. God, we look forward to that. We cling to it. We hold to it. We praise you for it. God, it is the only hope we have. And may that be our hope this Christmas, this Advent season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Receive the benediction, this final blessing of God, this final Christmas blessing of God, right? Because Jesus came to bestow upon us this very promise in reconciling us to God. Look at the greatest Christmas present God has given you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Merry Christmas. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.